It's probably Tuesday somewhere. You know what that means. It's time for the best and brightest moment of your week. It's time for that show you love and that show that you seek. It's time for nonsense. 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 The show. The best damn show you know. The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Hey, Mark! You skinny-ass bitch! Let's roll! Gentlemen, welcome back to Nonsense The Show! Sorry, I tried to get myself hyped up a little bit. It's been a long time since I've done this, as uh, some of you will know. Um, what's been going on? Where have I been? Why have you been not... Mm, words are hard. Welcome back to Nonsense. Sip a rum for Captain Nick getting back in the groove. Mmm. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Captain Nick. I am the uh, ringleader of this circus of the insane and the absurd and the odd and the fantastic and the downright fucking rad. Um, all right, let's just go ahead and uh, address the fucking elephant in the room. Where have I been? What's been going on? Captain Nick, you abandoned us. Don't worry, I'm back. Here's the deal. Um, it is now June as I record this, and you will be listening to it shortly after I record it because I'm not going to wait to upload it. I'm just going to get it up for y'all. 
<laughs> That's what she said. Sip a rum for the double entendre. I don't know if that's what that is, but I think it is. So I'm going with it, and I'm going to pretend I'm worldly. Um, basically, since New Year's, let's say, right after Christmas, things started getting a little hard in my world. Some challenges. It's just life. You know, things happen. There's job stuff. There's relationship stuff. There's life stuff. There's health stuff. It's just stuff stuff. And uh, it all came to a head right there in the end of April, and, and I needed to take a break. Um, so without thinking, I mean, I, I plan to spend a couple of days away. I, I went to, uh, stay at a place my, uh, my dad has elsewhere in the world. It was an incredible, incredible, uh, blessing to have in that moment. I soaked up a lot of sunshine, floated in the pool, drank way too many beers, uh, did a lot of introspective, reflective life focused thinking, you know, as you do as a responsible adult, um, <clears throat> came back, ended up getting sick. Uh, was down for the count for about two weeks. Not COVID, surprisingly. It was actually kidney-related, paying the price for my alcohol-related sins. Um, and, and then, you know, to, to be totally fucking honest with y'all, I'm at a point in my life where, you know, for the last year, I've been working towards certain things, and I had certain ideas about the way life was going to go, and things were looking real good. And uh, it took a lot to shift into that mindset, and then uh, those things went away. And so now I have to shift my mindset once again. And what I've found is I don't know what the fuck I want to do with my life. I've had a few good job offers, nothing that really made me feel uh, inspired, let's say. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of opportunities, and I'm just trying to figure out what the hell I want to do. So I've been doing a lot of, uh, just a lot of, a lot of dealing with myself, a lot of self-care, let's call it. And now I'm back. Um, what's the future of nonsense to show? Well, I intend to finish out season three beyond that. I don't know because quite frankly, this show has just not picked up traction the way I, I had hoped it would. I do not know what it would take to get it to, to move forward. And really what I'm selling on is maybe this concept just isn't where it's at. It's fun. I like it. I enjoy it. Um, it's interesting to me. Um, I would like to find something eventually that will get a little bit broader appeal though. So that's just something I'm, I'm working on. I'm trying to fucking play with. I'm trying to look at what's out there, figure out what I want to do. Uh, you know, I've been spending a lot of time working on my video stuff, hoping to finally put something out there as soon as I create something that I feel good about. You know, beginner stages, baby steps, got to start somewhere. And uh, in the meantime, you know, really it's, it's just a, it's a situation where I'm one step away from whatever the next opportunity is, and I just don't know what that is yet. So if you know of anything, let me know. Have any ideas? Let me know. In the meantime, I'm going to do this fucking show. Sip a rum for you guys. Sticking around. Thanks for listening. Mm. Of course, as always, I'm drinking the official rum of nonsense the show. That is Bamboo Rum. Absolutely fantastic. I just drink it straight. You know, you don't need no fucking accoutrement when you drink a rum this delicious. Um, what do we have for you? On episode 308 of Nonsense the Show, an episode I am entitling... Bud Kilmer's last ride. <laughs> um, we are going to talk a little bit about Led Zeppelin. I just have a little mishmash of stories about the rules they had for interviews, some stuff about their 1977 tour, and just a few other fun little anecdotes I found about one of the greatest rock and roll bands in the history of musical instruments. Uh, we're going to do a story about spy versus spy, a Cold War tale about friendship across the Iron Curtain. Stay tuned to see how the uh, CIA and the KGB had themselves a little illicit love affair. Uh, 
Uh, and then we will close things out today with uh, the Captain's Film Institute Film of the Week, number 43, my lucky number. This is, of course, the 1999 smash hit football film starring James ba- mm, James Vanderbeek, Paul Walker, uh, Scott Kahn, uh, and some other John Voight and a whole bunch of other motherfuckers. Um, we're going to talk about Varsity Blues tonight. And, of course, the soundtrack uh, to Varsity Blues is fucking amazing. So um, we've got some great songs. We've got some great fun. We're going to dive into it right about now. Don't you think? Yeah, so do I. Uh, segment number one tonight, the Rock Legends segment. We're going to talk a little bit about Led Zeppelin. As some of the biggest names in rock and roll history, it comes as no surprise that the members of Led Zeppelin could be... How do I put this? Well, a little crotchety. And in a way, you really can't blame them. The endless tours, the hectic studio sessions were likely stressful enough without hordes of journalists hammering down their door looking for an exclusive interview or a tiny tidbit to take back to their grateful editors, asking the same questions over and over and over again, just prying and prying, trying to find any little pebble of drama, gossip, or dirt that they could use for a headline. Time was precious, and the likes of Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, John Bonham, and of course John Paul Jones, the great naval hero himself, couldn't be relied upon to be entirely civil all of the time. So to maximize their interview time and ensure nobody crossed the line, Led Zeppelin set a couple of ground rules that journalists were required to adhere to if they wanted to capture the rock heroes on tape. But before we take a look at those rules, it's worth explaining why they were needed in the first place. First of all, you see, it should be said that John Bonham could be intensely unwelcoming when he wanted to be. I mean, come on. uh, It's all there in his drumming. I mean, you could just listen, the chaos, the aggression, the ferocity, all of it. Plain as day. As a result, journalists were frequently pulled to one side before entering a room with Bonham and instructed not to make, quote, any sort of eye contact with John Bonham at all. I once met a man who told me the same thing about wolves. <laughs> but it wasn't just journalists who needed to be afraid of Bonham. Uh, the drummer was a hard drinker, and when he drank, he often lost control of the simmering aggression lying just beneath his glamorous surface. Indeed, he once slammed a fist into Robert Plant's face following an argument about money just before Led Zeppelin were due to set foot on the stage of the Budokan in Tokyo. I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's an illustrious stage. And you're going to punch your man right in the face? Zeppelin's anger issues didn't end, of course, with Bonham. Their manager, Peter Grant, could be just as fiery. He developed this aggressive professional persona partly to secure all the best deals for his acts, using his intimidating size to frighten the life out of anyone who stood between him and a six-figure sum. As ex-Led Zeppelin press agent Bill Harry once recalled, when Peter Grant was lying, uh, laying down the law to people, there would be visibly shaking. People were terrified of him. He had this immense power to project strength. But I found he was like a cuddly bear. However, Grant's business style often found its way into his personal life, resulting in the destruction of numerous hotel rooms with the help of none other than John Bonham. Having all of these personalities in one place made interviewing Led Zeppelin a complex affair. The rules we are about to discuss acted as a sort of roadmap that allowed journalists to navigate their passage with the band without ending up with a cassette recorder stuffed up somewhere they'd rather it wasn't. So, what were these rules? What are the commandments of interviewing Led Zeppelin? Well, let's find out. Rule number one, 
Never talk to anyone in the band unless they first talk to you. Essentially, you need to let them be in control. Keeps them calm. Number two, do not make any sort of eye contact with John Bonham. This is for your own safety. (laughs) Number three, do not talk to Peter Grant or Richard Cole for any reason. Number four, keep your cassette player turned off at all times unless conducting an interview, which makes sense. You know, you want to make sure off the record things stay off the record. Uh, Number five, never ask questions about anything other than music. They don't want these people prying into the personal lives. They don't want the stories about the drug abuse and the the groupies and the, the marital issues or the band's arguments. It's just about the music. Number six, most importantly of all, understand this. The band will read what is written about them. The band does not like the press, nor do they trust them. So immediately what you can see here is this is obviously going to be a very, very relaxed and non-confrontational sort of interview system. You can be very calm as you walk into this room. (laughs) You know it's uh, not antagonistic, right? Now that we know the ground rules and how to behave ourselves, why don't we dive in and take a look at a few more legendary tales from the Led Zeppelin archives? Starting, of course, with their infamous 1977 tour. We've had a few stories about uh, legendary tours here with Ozzy and Motley Crue, and of course we uh, we talked about Altamont, uh, that uh, that lovely little soiree. Uh, Led Zeppelin's 1977 tour was many things. A watershed moment in over-the-top stadium tours, a huge financial success, a statement of Zeppelin's overwhelming commercial might and dominance of rock music. And... A violent and tumultuous nightmare. The tour was the band's first, since vocalist Robert Plant broke a number of bones in a car accident while on holiday after the release of Physical Graffiti. It all went wrong from the get-go. Plant came down with laryngitis, postponing the start of the tour. And the band had already shipped its instruments to the U.S., leaving them without equipment for over a month. Jimmy Page didn't play guitar at all in that time, which for a man like that must have been torturous. In April 1977, violence erupted at Cincinnati Riverfront Coliseum, where fans without tickets rushed the gate and threw bottles and rocks through windows to crash the show. In June, at a show in Tampa, Florida, a thunderstorm cut short the show, leading to rioting, uh, rioting fans, 19 arrests, and more than 50 injuries. During another show in Chicago, Jimmy Page became violently ill. The paramount instance of insanity went down, though, Of course, it's got to be in the Bay Area in Oakland, California, and was exacerbated by Zeppelin manager Peter Grant's decision to hire criminals as security. Seems like uh, between the late 60s and late 70s, there was a lot of criminals being hired as security for rock and roll bands. (laughs) Uh, The story, as it's told, goes something like this. The band played the first of several shows for the legendary Bill Graham on June 23, 1977. Whilst performing, Warren, the 11-year-old son of the band's manager, Peter Grant, attempted to remove a Led Zeppelin sign from one of the dressing room trailers. Per an account by Graham, one of his security guards politely told Warren that he couldn't have it. However, drummer John Bonham's account differed markedly. He claimed that he saw it from the stage and said that the guard hit Warren. A scene of ultra-violence then ensued. 
Peter Grant, Bonham, and hired muscle, no, slash known underworld figure John Binden, beat seven hells out of Graham's employee. Whilst the beating was underway, the band's notorious tour manager, Richard Cole, is reported to have stood guard with an iron bar. The man was rushed to hospital, bleeding, and the band are said to have refused to play the next show unless Graham signed a document that absolved them of any guilt. Graham's hand was forced. Given that it was uh, the days before the internet where mania surrounded bands, he feared a riot if the band didn't turn up, regardless of punk or not. He was also assured that the document was legally worthless. After the show, Grant, Cole, Bonham, and Binden were arrested when back at their hotel. The case rumbled on for over a year and was eventually settled out of court for an undisclosed fee. Graham discussed the episode in a chapter of his autobiography, which was released a year after his death in 1992. It remains one of the most fraught stories in the whole of Led Zeppelin's history. Getting into a feud with, uh, with Bill Graham, pretty big deal in those days. That man was a powerhouse from coast to coast when it comes to music venues. Mm. Now, the reason I decided to do the Led Zeppelin stories tonight, along with Varsity Blues, is I always try to tie things together when I'm able. Um, and I found a story that ties Led Zeppelin to Varsity Blues. Jimmy Page's whipped cream bikini. Nope. Nope. Dang. Nope. Nope. There we go. Dang. 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 <laughs> nope. Sorry, guys. My buttons are way off track. I really need to clean these things up. <laughs> Sip around for this highly professional broadcast. No wonder we can't get any new fucking listeners. <laughs> Hope y'all are enjoying the show. I'm having a good time. Ever the enterprising Lothario Led Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page had no shortage of crazy sexual tales attached to his name. An instance of him greeting some groupies, however, gets some extra points for creativity. While out on tour and apparently bored stiff at a hotel, Page and drummer John Bonham were struck with an idea for how to present the in-demand guitarist to a small horde of female fans. Page reportedly stripped completely naked and laid down on a room service cart. Bonham then covered him in whipped cream and assumed the role of bellhop, wheeled him into a room of young, uh, and then wheeled him into a room full of insatiable young women. Whatever happened next was unknown, but certainly unsanitary. <laughs> Now, Led Zeppelin are originators. They're legends for a reason. Um, and they are pretty much the guys that invented the whole rock stars destroying hotel rooms cliche. They made great music and were great at vandalism. Like any vice or bad behavior, you can find yourself committing such mis misdeeds habitually. And apparently Jimmy Page did, uh, Jimmy Page rather, got really into breaking things. Uh, enough so that Fred Durst would be proud. <laughs> Boom, nailed it. Because he had a song called Break Stuff. If you were angsty in the late 90s, you know. Uh, Page's virtuistic vandalism got to the point where the band's management allegedly had to step in. Now just imagine how far it had to get to get to that point of the management stepping in for Jimmy Page at that era. And as the story goes, at one hotel he had to be chained to a toilet so that he wouldn't break anything further. Page was also supposedly chained to toilets, sometimes with a groupie to keep him company, when he was unable to control his urge to dress as a Nazi and do heroin with drag queens in dive bars. There's a sentence I never thought I'd say. 
All right, eight years after the infamous shark incident at Seattle's Edgewater Inn, the band returned to the same hotel, somehow skirting their lifetime ban. The hotel's manager, James Blum, uh, hesitantly welcomed the rockers back, but demanded they be on their best behavior. Obviously, that was a little bit naive, because of course that's not what happened. Legend has it, that night the band threw not one television set into the Puget Sound, but five racking up an obscene amount of room damages. Mr. Bloom was right, uh, rightfully furious and charged the band $2,500 for the cost of the TVs, which tour manager Richard Cole gleefully paid. When checking out, Cole was asked by a young hotel clerk, I've heard that Led Zeppelin has a reputation for throwing TVs, but I thought it was BS. Can you tell me, what does it feel like to just toss a TV out of your window? Cole very coolly replied, Kid, There are some things in life that you've got to experience for yourself. He slid the clerk $500. He said, here you go, mate. Go toss a TV, courtesy of Led Zeppelin. (laughs) I mean, come on. That's an era of uh, the absolute excesses of, uh, of rock and roll, you know? Um, All right, guys, that's the end of our Led Zeppelin story, which means, of course, we have to go into a little bit of Led Zeppelin music. Starting things off tonight, uh, well, it's going to be our only Led Zeppelin song tonight. Uh, This, of course, is the Immigrant Song. See you on the flip side to talk about Spy versus Spy. There are certain bands that as you grow up you hear about over and over again because they're the legendary bands and you're kind of 
at least I was kind of led to believe that like you kind of have to be into these certain bands if you're into music. Like it's sort of a foundational thing. Zeppelin was a band I just never super got into. Love a few of their songs, that of course being one of them. But uh, I don't know. There you go. There's my personal thoughts on Led Zeppelin. Nobody asked for. Um, <laughs> coming up next here on episode three zero eight, the eighth episode of season three of Nonsense the Show. It's the best damn show you know. Um, this is a uh, another installment in our Cold War Tales files. We are just kind of diving into this. I've been doing a lot of reading about the Cold War here and there. Um, there's a couple of great uh, great Instagram accounts and, and things that I've found that, uh, that are great resources. So expect a lot of cool spy stories coming up in the rest of Season 3. Um, this is kind of a fun one that I've been sitting on for a little bit, and I'm excited to finally share with you. So uh, without further ado, this is the story. Uh, well, it's a Cold War love story. How two spies formed a friendship across the Iron Curtain. A spy is a fabulist. Spinner of false tales, a, a maker of unreal worlds. A spy is a seducer of reckless hearts and broken souls, and a voyeur of the carnage left behind. A spy is not true, but Genevieve Vasilenko and Jack Platt never lived strictly by the rules of their profession. Platt of the CIA and Vasilenko of the KGB were assigned to corrupt each other. Instead, they reached across the minefield of Cold War espionage to forge an extraordinary friendship. For years, they tried to maintain their brotherhood in the wilderness of mirrors that was the game between the CIA and the KGB. Ultimately, their relationship fell victim to a cold-blooded act by another spy, one devoid of loyalties to anybody, a man by the name of Aldrich H. Ames. We will be telling his story here on Nonsense in the future. In this previously untold tale of betrayal and post-Cold War redemption, Janity Vasilenko emerges as an unaccounted victim of the CIA's most damaging spy case in its entire history. Once Ames exposed Vasilenko to the harsh judgment of the lords of the KGB, his friendship with Platt very nearly cost him his life. Yet, through it all, their friendship remained constant. And in a stranger-than-fiction ending that teaches much about the march of capitalism, they ended up pooling their CIA KGB spy talents in a bid to get rich on the Wild West business scene of post-communist Russia. If it hadn't been for an early shoulder injury, the tall, lean, and hawk-nosed Vasilenko might have gone on to glory as a Soviet volleyball star, rather than into the hidden life as a KGB spy. When injuries ended his hopes of making the Soviet National Volleyball Squad headed for the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, he found himself steered instead into a slot in the KGB's training program. Vasilenko eventually joined the KGB's elite first directorate, which handled foreign intelligence, and in 1976 was assigned to Line KR, Counterintelligence, in the KGB's premier overseas station, Washington, D.C., he enjoyed at least one major success, serving as the KGB's first case officer for former National Security Agency employee Ronald Pelton, one of Moscow's most important spies inside the United States. After Pelton walked into the Soviet embassy in Washington in January 1980 to volunteer to work for the KGB, Vasilenko dressed him up in a disguise and put him on a bus crowded with Russian embassy employees to sneak him out without being detected by the FBI. 
Pelton ultimately exposed the so-called Ivy Bells project in which the Navy and the NSA had installed eavesdropping equipment on an underwater Soviet military communications cable off the Siberian coast. Vasilenko's days in Washington also brought him into contact with his opposite number on the American side, Jack Platt, a rumpled and gruff former Marine who had joined the CIA in 1963 and who by the late 1970s was a hardened veteran of the CIA's Soviet division. They became acquainted while trying to lure one another into committing treason. Based in Washington, Platt was trolling for KGB officers in 1977 when a Soviet defector, a former classmate of Vasilenko's at the KGB's training institute, identified Vasilenko as one of the KGB officers working under diplomatic cover in the Soviet embassy. Platt took the first step, arranging through an intermediary to bump, in, uh, to intermediary, rather, to bump into Vasilenko at a Harlem Globetrotters basketball game right there in Washington. Almost immediately, Platt found that despite his secret mission to recruit Vasilenko, he was being charmed by the Russian. Halfway through the game, I realized, wow, I really like this guy, he later recalled in an interview. Platt persisted, even though Vasilenko showed no interest at all in the Americans' blandishments. I never stopped trying to recruit him, sighed Platt, but he never crossed the line. The best evidence was that Vasilenko never told Platt about Pelton, who wasn't caught until he was compromised by a Soviet defector, KGB officer Vitaly Yurchenko, in 1985. Instead, Vasilenko tried to turn the tables, asking Platt to work for the KGB with obviously dismal results. Platt recalls telling Vasilenko, What the hell can you offer me? Through their awkward espionage courtship, Platt and Vasilenko gradually discovered that they were soulmates. Streetwise risk, uh, streetwise risk takers who shared a voracious love for the spy game and a disdain for the faceless bureaucrats back at headquarters. Before long, they were meeting quietly at cafes around Washington for dinner and drinks. Finally, they worked up the nerve to go off hunting and shooting together in the West Virginia forests. By the end of Vasilenko's tour in Washington, Platt had helped Vasilenko buy a new car and was even going home with Vasilenko for dinner with his wife and two children. Think about that for a minute. A CIA case officer going home for dinner with a man who he is trying to convert and who is trying to convert him. His sworn enemy and also his best friend. The friendship grew so strong, Vasilenko recalled in an interview, that they finally called a truce. We told each other, listen, don't try. Let's be friends. Let's have a good relationship. Forget about the task. That was the agreement. It was good times. That's why we continued. But Vasilenko was on the wrong side of history. And that harsh, harsh truth kept intruding. While he gave up trying to recruit Platt to the slowly crumbling Soviet system, Platt continued working on his friend. For years, in fact, Platt continued to use his CIA alias, Chris was his work name, in his meetings with Vasilenko. But Vasilenko never gave in to temptation. He did, though, stop filing official reports about their contacts. He kept up the relationship after his KGB supervisors, increasingly suspicious about his ties to Platt, told him to break it off. And even after his wife warned angrily that his indiscretions would lead to ruin. Yet the element of risk only seemed to energize Vasilenko. 
He understood that CIA regulations required Platt to continue to report on their meetings. But he assumed that was just American bureaucratic nonsense and would never interfere with their friendship. An assumption that nearly brought Vasilenko's life to a premature end. Platt, realizing how dangerous it would be for Vasilenko to meet him inside the Soviet Union, broke off contact when the Soviet spy was given a routine transfer back to Moscow in 1981. I told him to go have a good tour and enjoy the wonderful quality of life in Moscow and experience the socialist paradise again, Platt said. I told him that when he came back out for a new overseas posting, I would find him. When Vasilenko... Mm. When Vasilenko came back out, uh, came back out in 1984, it was for an assignment that might have walked right off the pages of Graham Greene's Our Man in Havana. The Soviet ambassador to the tiny South American backwater of Guyana happened to have excellent political connections, and he apparently complained to Moscow that he needed a fully staffed KGB station in his embassy, an important measure of status within the Soviet foreign affairs bureaucracy. Before Vasilenko knew what had hit him, he found himself on an airplane bound for Georgetown, Guyana, as the KGB deputy resident, deputy station chief. Vasilenko quickly became bored to death in Georgetown, where there were only limited opportunities to spy on the KGB's main enemy, the CIA. Only the occasional visits from Platt broke hit the subtropical monotony. Platt, of course, had been waiting patiently for signs of Vasilenko's reemergence from the Soviet Union. And as soon as he discovered that he was in Guyana, Platt received approval from CIA management to fly down to Georgetown and resume his efforts to recruit his old companion. They easily renewed their friendship, but now there was a sharper edge of tension. Vasilenko, who had been clearly forbidden from seeing Platt, found it more difficult to put aside the Cold War pressures and simply enjoy his friend's company. In Georgetown, I met Platt unofficially, Vasilenko eventually acknowledged. At first, I sent a telegram to Moscow saying my old CIA contact is here and I asked for permission to meet him. Permission was not granted, and I got angry. In Georgetown, Guyana, what else is there to do? The main task was to work against Americans, but how could I work work against Americans without meeting them? Platt was stubbornly still intent on trying to recruit Vasilenko, but Vasilenko was just as obstinate in his repeated deflections of Platt's offers. Back in Moscow, meanwhile, the KGB was trying to cope with Ames, who had revealed just how thoroughly the Americans had penetrated the KGB. Each day seemed to bring new scandal as one KGB officer after another was arrested for spying, then interrogated, and then shot. In 1985 and 1986, as many as ten Russian spies working for the CIA were executed. Morale plunged inside the First Directorate as a result because the KGB had kept Ames' treachery secret from all but a few of its top officials. Almost no one knew what had prompted all the arrests. So imagine you're in the stressful world of espionage to begin with. And then one by one, your coworkers start getting pulled in, accused of treason, interrogated, tortured probably, and then eventually executed. And you have no fucking idea why. It's a scary time. So scary, I've got a sneeze coming. Hang on. Oh, boy. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. This is a professionally produced broadcast, and I'm sure I will edit all that out uh, later so that this uh, sounds seamless. Uh, So 
if you're hearing this, just know that I uh, do much rum and forgot. <laughs> Back to the story. Whenever you walked down the halls of the first directorate, you felt like hiding your face, recalled Vasilenko. You never knew who might be a mole. During his long talks in Guyana with Platt, Vasilenko would sometimes grumble about KGB office politics. And Platt would humor his friend by complaining about his own bosses in the CIA's Soviet division. In the process, Vasilenko would occasionally, and perhaps inadvertently, pass on tidbits about what had happened in 1985 and 1986 that Platt and the CIA found useful. At one point, Ames, then still a colleague of Platt's in the Soviet division, approached him to discuss the uh, explosive and puzzling case of Vitaly Yurchenko, who had defected to the CIA in August 1985 and then re-defected to the Soviets in November 1985, just a few months later. Unaware that Ames was on the KGB's payroll, Platt confided to him that I might have a way to find out what happened to Yurchenko after he returned to Moscow. But Platt stubbornly refused suggestions from second-guessers at headquarters that he had enough leverage over Vasilenko to blackmail him into becoming an American spy. Blackmail makes for resentful agents, Platt countered. He would take Vasilenko only if he volunteered. In 1987, Platt retired from the CIA, but he was kept on as a contractor late into 1988, specifically to try to keep trying to uh, to keep trying to lure Vasilenko into espionage. Platt told himself that by continuing to try to recruit his friend, he was actually doing Vasilenko a favor. I knew how rotten that Soviet system was, and I knew that he didn't fit into it. I knew that if he came to the U.S., he could be a great volleyball coach or have some other wonderful career. Platt last visited Guyana in the fall of 1987, promising Vasilenko that he would return the following February to celebrate his birthday with his friend. But when it came time for Platt to arrange his trip, he found to his horror that Vasilenko had vanished without a trace. There was dead silence the kind of silence that we had heard when our agents were all arrested in 1985. I was sick to my stomach. In fact, by this point, Vasilenko was already one month into his nightmare journey into the dark belly of the KGB. In January 1988, Vasilenko flew to Cuba from Guyana on routine KGB business, with plans to stay with an old KGB friend while he was there. He was met instead by the KGB's local security officer who told him that his friend had been suddenly called away. But the security officer had thoughtfully found Vasilenko another house to use during his stay. As Vasilenko stepped inside, KGB security men threw him to the floor and split his head open. He was in a KGB safe house. And he was under arrest for espionage. As the interrogations began, it soon became clear why. They asked me if I knew Mr. Platt, Vasilenko recalled. He was eventually dumped onto a Russian freighter and given a one-way ticket to the KGB's deepest hole. Aboard ship, quote, I was thinking, why not just jump off, kill myself? I knew nobody would help me when I got to Moscow. I knew people who had been shot, but then I thought of my family. 
During his first grilling in the KGB's infamous LeBianca prison, Vasilenko's interrogators told him that Cuban intelligence agents had found an indiscriminating... Uh, mm, <laughs> sip of rum, words are hard. <laughs> Let's try that again. Vasilenko's interrogators told him that Cuban intelligence agents had found an incriminating tape recording of his last meeting with Platt, who had carelessly left it behind in a hotel room. We know you are a spy, the interrogators insisted. Now confess. Vasilenko, of course, didn't believe them. On his way back to his cell, he remembered that Platt had promised never to record their meetings. In the depths of his despair, Vasilenko needed something on which to place his faith, and he settled on the truthfulness of his old friend. If Platt had told him there was no tape recorder, then the interrogators were lying. Therefore, Vasilenko could withstand their worst. This leap of faith saved his life. In fact, Platt had not taped their meetings. The KGB had fabricated the story of the Cuban discovery to hide the real source of their information, which was almost certainly... Mr. Ames. He had stolen a small mountain of CIA files, so many that he later said even he didn't know what was in all of them. Ames probably gave the KGB copies of Platt's reports uh, reports on his contacts with Vasilenko in Guyana. Fortunately for Vasilenko, Platt had never exaggerated his relationship with the Soviet in his reports. The files showed only that Vasilenko had held unauthorized meetings with Platt. Still, The KGB held him for six months, rotating informants into his cell as bunkmates. But of course, Vasilenko never broke, and word finally filtered down that the KGB no no longer believed he was a spy. When he was finally released, Vasilenko was still cashiered from the KGB under charges that he had illegally imported hunting rifles into the Soviet Union. And then there was one final insult. He was demoted from KGB lieutenant colonel to major just before he was fired. Denied a pension and forbidden to travel overseas, Vasilenko found it difficult to pick up the pieces of his life in Moscow. Platt, meanwhile, racked with guilt over the possibility that his actions had somehow led to Vasilenko's disappearance, tried for years to find out what had happened. I thought he was dead. Angry and frustrated, Platt soon became convinced that a mole inside the CIA had fingered Vasilenko. Indeed, long before CIA management intensified the search that ultimately led to Ames, Platt, retired and on the outside, began to tell friends inside the CIA's Soviet division to watch their backs. It wasn't until after the failed Soviet coup in uh, in August 1991 that Platt heard through a mutual acquaintance that Vasilenko was alive. Finally, he worked up the courage to telephone Vasilenko at his Moscow apartment. When he picked up the telephone, Platt, using his old alias from his CIA days, quietly said, Hello, this is Chris. After what seemed to Platt to be an endless silence, Vasilenko genially replied, Hello, Chris. I've been expecting your call. Platt later recalled, in that moment, I felt like crying. Their friendship, having survived the Cold War and the treachery of Ames, began anew. By 1992, Vasilenko was allowed to travel to the United States, and before long, he and Platt were in business together. 
Platt was determined to help the man who had lost his livelihood and nearly his life because of their friendship. Vasilenko Securitar, a private security investigation service based in Moscow, and Platt's Virginia-based international security consulting firm, the Hamilton Trading Group, now work together on business security projects in Russia. Vasilenko and Platt were once again free to go hunting together, and meanwhile, their families, including their children, grew close. More importantly, Vasilenko had demonstrated to Platt the power of loyalty and of forgiveness. He never asked me if I betrayed him, says Platt. All he has ever said to me is, I know it wasn't you. What a story of friendship that is, huh? I really like that one. Uh, of all the Cold War tales you hear, I think that's one of those, uh, one of those really nice ones. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are 40, almost 45 minutes into this episode of the show. It's gone on longer than I expected, and that makes me happy. Uh, we have, uh, what do we have? Two songs in a segment to go. So let's uh, go ahead and get this show on the road. This, of course, is going to be Green Day with Nice Guys Finish Last. Stay tuned for the Captain's Film Institute, the West Kane and Coyotes, and Bud Kilmer's Last Ride! You know, 
Green Day is one of those bands that every time I listen to them, I fucking love them. And then I find myself not thinking about them much for a while. And then as soon as I think of them or I hear them again, I'm like, man, I fucking love Green Day. Great song. Love that song. Nice guys finished last. Um, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we are headed in to the, uh, let's call it the finale of tonight's episode. Uh, well, it's the final segment. Um, we are headed right into the Captain's Film Institute. This is, of course, my favorite segment on the show. I'm a movie nerd. I've always been a movie nerd. I've always wanted to be a movie star. Turns out I just don't have movie star good looks. Um, I think it'd be really fun to play a bad guy, though. Hey, do me a favor. When you hear this, uh, shoot me a message. Let me know. Do you think I would make a good movie villain, good bad guy in a movie? And if not, what role do you think I should play in a movie? Funny sidekick, chubby best friend, weird guy in the background. I don't know. You let me know. What role would you cast me for in a movie? It could be generic or specific, whatever makes you happy. Captain's Film Institute, number 43, the Captain's Film Institute, very quickly becoming one of the most illustrious film repositories in American history. This is the 43rd entry into our, uh, our Film Institute. This is Varsity Blues, released in 1999, directed by somebody called Brian Robbins, starring... James Vanderbeek, Paul Walker, John Voight, Amy Smart, Scott Kahn, and Ali Larder. Synopsis of the movie reads as such. As a boy growing up in West Canaan, Texas, you never question the sanctity of football. You just listen to what the coaches said and try as best as you could to win. Win at all costs. In small town Texas, high school football is a religion. The head coach is deified as long as the team is winning, and a 17-year-old schoolboys carry the hopes of an entire community onto the gridiron every Friday night. In his 30th year as head coach Bud Kilmer, played by John Voight, is trying to lead his West Canaan Coyotes to their 23rd division title. When star quarterback Lance Harbor, played by Paul Walker, suffers a devastating injury, the Coyotes are forced to regroup under the questionable leadership of one John Moxon played by James Vanderbeek, a second-string quarterback with a slightly irreverent approach to the game. Varsity Blues explores our obsession with sports and how, the, uh, how teenage athletes respond to the extraordinary pleasure, uh, pressures placed on them. Um, as always, I'd like to talk a little bit about, uh, there's a few, a few things we do with every entry into the Captain's Film Institute. Um, we do a favorite line, we do a favorite scene, we do a favorite character. Um, with a movie like Varsity Blues, sometimes these topics are really easy to do. Sometimes they're really tough. Tonight is one that was really tough because for favorite line, there's about 10 different lines I could pick as a favorite line. Favorite scene, there's about 10 different scenes I could pick as a favorite scene. Favorite character, I can think of about three of them I really fucking like. But I had to narrow it down. I had to make the hard decisions. That's why I'm the captain. That's why I'm the leader of the Captain's Film Institute. So I made those decisions, and here is what they are. Um, I narrowed it down. As far as favorite line, there were several choices. I went back and forth. I changed this several times. But in the end, what I decided on was the only line that could possibly be my favorite line in this entire movie is our buddy Billy Bob sitting there at the landing strip looking at his teacher, Miss Davis, as he finds out about her off-duty employment opportunities. Uh, and he's given a rating, and he says... I give it a, uh, a 10. A 10. A fucking 10. A fucking 10. That's one that I still find myself quoting to this very day. Uh, as far as my favorite scene, 
Um, all day, every day. It's Tweeter stealing the cop car uh, and the follow-up at the Mini Mart afterwards. Um, and just, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of TMI, but Miss Davis uh, showing up at the landing strip is a core memory of my, uh, let's call them my formative years. Favorite character. Um, really, when I thought about it, after I, after I really kind of put it down, uh, there's only one guy it's going to be. It's going to be Tweeter. Uh, Scott Kahn can do no wrong on screen to me. I love Scott Kahn. Anytime Scott Kahn is in a movie, I'm going to see that movie, and I know I'm going to enjoy, at the very least, his parts. Uh, Mox's little brother, Kyle, is also a highlight every time he's on screen. All of his different personas, his little, uh, you know, his religious experimentation, his cult work, whatever. I love it. Um, Some of you guys don't know how much of a method actor Paul Walker was, but he actually did break his leg during filming of this movie. So it wasn't just his character. Uh, in the scene where Darcy, played by Ali Larder, sports her whipped cream bikini, uh, they did not, uh, they couldn't use whipped cream because it just, it wouldn't stick properly. So they ended up having to use shaving cream to uh, get the effect they were looking for. Ali Larder and Amy Smart, uh, Amy Smart are best friends in real life to this very day, and they have been for now 20 years. Uh, this was Ali's film debut as well. They met on set. They became fast friends because they were some of the only women on set uh, for most of their scenes. Um. <clears throat> Although uh, Billy Bob, the character, was supposed to be an 18-year-old high school senior, Ron Lester, the actor who played him, was actually 28 years old at the time this was filmed. And some of you may know he eventually lost a shitload of weight um, after this movie became like a fitness trainer and like an influencer kind of guy. Um, one thing I love about watching this movie is, is check out the fashion. Check out the clothes. Uh, check out the jeans, specifically on the guys. Baggy, uh, baggy carpenter jeans were all the rage back in 1999. Uh, they're not quite Jinkos, uh, you know, giant Jinkos, but they are uh, certainly getting close. <laughs> One of the things that we often talk about when we dive into the Captain's Film Institute on these films is the alternate casting options. How different would this film have been if somebody else had taken the role or if somebody else was unavailable or whatever it may be? Joshua Jackson was uh, considered for the role of John Moxon. Chris Klein of American Pie fame was also in the running. So two pretty good names in there. Um, I think they both would have been fine with it, but uh, Vanderbeek is the guy. The new tweeter end zone dance was derived from a famous end zone. <laughs> Words are hard. Sip a rum for this tired broadcast professional. Mm. You know, weirdly, you can, you can really feel uh, the effects of doing a show like this if you haven't done it in a while. It takes a lot out of you to talk for an hour straight. Let's start again. The new tweeter end zone dance was derived from a dance called the Icky Shuffle which was a touchdown dance invented, uh, innovated by a man called Icky Woods, who was a running back for the Cincinnati Bengals from 1988 to 1991. And to be honest, it feels very, very much in character for Tweeter uh, in small-town America, where probably the Internet wasn't a big thing yet, to uh, steal something he spotted somewhere and say, hey, this is mine, I came up with it myself. Uh, Mox says to Billy Bob as he's about to puke, you thinking about calling some dinosaurs? Which of course leads to the iconic Billy Bob line, a uh, Billy Bob line of puke and rally. Um, as I was rewatching this movie to to write this segment, um, that line you thinking about calling some dinosaurs? Um, it, it's just one of the funniest ways I think I've ever seen to talk about uh, you know to ask someone if they're going to puke. It's a dinosaur call. It's exactly what it is. Never thought about it before. <laughs> Um, another one of those lines that you have to talk about if you're talking about this movie, you're talking about 
um, you know, famous, uh, famous lines, classic lines, legendary lines. Um, there's two of them that happened actually in the same scene. Let's start off, of course, with Miss Davis. Penis, 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 vagina, vagina, vagina. Now, listen, when this movie came out, I was 13 years old. Of course, this was like the greatest thing in the fucking world to me, you know? <laughs> and then, of course, you have Mr. Moxon's famous classroom speech talking about his friend, uh, well, Pedro. The male erection, uh, pitching a tent, sporting wood. Bicycles formed, marches on. Thank you, Jonathan. Stiff, stiffy, Mr. Mortis. Rigor mortis is set in. Flesh rocket, uh, Jack's magic beanstalk, tall Tommy, mushroom on a stick, Mr. Mushroom head, purple headed yogurt slinger. And, uh, Pedro. Pedro? Pedro. <laughs> Um, John Voight, of course, is incredible as Coach Kilmer. He's fucking hateable to the max. I'll never get tired of hating him all the way through the film. Uh, I enjoy every second of his comeuppance there at the end when the team stands up to him uh, in defense of Wendell. Um, him walking out through the tunnel under all of his, uh, his division title banners all by himself. Let's go. Let's go. Nobody responding. The magic is gone. Um, and then, of course, it just, it, you know, I'm a sucker for a hero moment. I fucking love a hero moment. I don't care how big or how small that moment is. Anytime somebody gets their moment in the spotlight, their hero moment, I'm fucking pumped. It always makes me happy to see Billy Bob get his hero moment to uh, close the film out. I like Billy Bob. I like seeing Billy Bob as a, uh, as a hero. Um, that's just good shit. And uh, with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to close this show out with the Foo Fighters with a song called My Hero, one that I've loved forever. Uh, But before we get to that, I want to thank you all for tuning in once again to Nonsense the Show. Um, This is just a passion project of mine. I make a couple of bucks off of it through patreon.com backslash nonsense the show. I'd love to make more. So if you uh, if you if you enjoy the show, if you get some value out of it. Please consider jumping on there, throwing me a couple of bucks per episode. Um, I would really love to get the listener base up. I'd love to get more engagement with my listeners. I don't know how to do that. So I'm just going to ask you directly. Tell your friends. Share this fucking show. Please. Ask me questions. Tell me what you like. Submit songs. Submit movies. Submit stories. Whatever you got, I want to know it, all right? All right. Thanks so much, y'all. Stay tuned for the Foo Fighters. I will see you all uh, within two weeks. For the next episode of Nonsense, the show, I'll get myself back on schedule here. we got 24 episodes in this season. This was only number eight. We're only a third of the way through, motherfuckers. Love you all. See you next time. Bye-bye.
This tape will self-destruct in five seconds.